Welcome to episode 153 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Excited to be with you again with my returning guest, James Dodds, who will be back on the show today to finish our episode that we recently started in episode 149, where we went back to our running true-false game. And so he'll be back for round two of that this time around. Again, the previous episode was 149. Don't necessarily have to listen to that before you get to this one, but I think it'll be fun for you to go back once you get through this. We'll have six more statements for True-False that James and I will will bat around as we get to it in just a second. Before we get there, I want to thank you guys for the dialogue. I got, I think, more emails in 24 hours after I released the episode on Monday where I talked about Kipchoge and Kosgi and the women's world record and all those things. I got more emails in 24 hours with you all sharing your perspectives with me and not necessarily agreeing with me. And that makes me happy because I appreciate appreciate the dialogue, appreciate you guys testing me and testing my perspectives. So we'll recap a little bit on that today. I've got the Kipchoge discussion I'll save for when James comes on I've got a true false question for him that centers around Kipchoge's 159 effort but we'll start with the intro and I want to talk a little bit about shoes first of all I need to make a correction I've got I got an email from several of you that that corrected me and I incorrectly surmised that Kosgi was wearing a prototype shoe and it appears after further review and looking at the close-ups of her footwear that she was actually wearing the next percent, the current version of the Vaporfly that is commercially available. So she was not in the prototypes that Kipchoge was wearing, but still had the benefits of the Vaporfly technology in the form of the next percent shoes she had on the pink, pink version of that, which apparently there was a statement from her agent saying that she debated wearing those shoes until Kipchoge pulled off his result. And then she decided that if it was... If they were going to work for him, then they would work for her, and clearly that paid off. But I wanted to talk about the footwear discussion because I got lots of commentary about that. And this is a tricky one. As I think about it personally, I do feel like it's hard to draw a line on footwear technology, and I know a lot of people have made the argument that, well, this is just incremental improvement in footwear, and you know, how is that any different from making lighter foams over time as we've seen or having you know overall better materials and foams and and uppers and things like that and this one to me feels different one because we're talking about potentially a a propulsion type device a, a spring of sorts in that carbon fiber plate that feels a little bit different than just a lighter foam and also because and I think we have essentially proven and, and Nike has shown and maybe their own marketing is to their detriment that these shoes make a 4% distance and energy return. And, you know, allegedly what Kipchoge is wearing has a potentially 6% difference in energy return as the foot interacts with the ground. And so if that's true, then we're talking about a stepwise improvement in footwear technology that isn't available to all of those athletes especially those athletes that are sponsored by other brands and so you could potentially at the U.S. trials or at the Olympics next year have those athletes that are Nike athletes basically getting a one and a half to three minute advantage just by standing on the starting line in a different pair of shoes and so for me as I think about it I shudder to consider that perhaps the Olympic team for the U.S. for the marathon will be determined by who's wearing vapor flies and not necessarily by the best athletes on the day. And, you know, so I think at least if that's a question, then it, then it requires that you, that you at least do some research, ask yourself whether or not there should be some sort of standard around footwear. And the IAAF to this point hasn't done their job on that. Now they did recently announce yesterday that they're going to basically call a task force to look at this technology and see if it should be regulated in some way 
but at a minimum they should for enforce their own rules which is that you're not allowed to wear prototype shoes you should you should only be able to wear shoes that are commercially available which doesn't just apply to nike and as another emailer pointed out there are other athletes like daz at boston who wore a prototype brooks shoe i think jared ward wore a prototype saucony in new york so there's other athletes from other brands that are wearing prototypes, and if that isn't allowed, as the IAAF rules state, then there needs to be a way to actually enforce that to make sure we have a level playing field at a minimum You know, with that rule applied. And so there are real questions to be asked, and to me, you know, this is a question that's asked in all sports, and a lot of people draw comparisons to tennis and wooden rackets and and you know now we have obviously much more advanced tennis racket technology and while that's true and there have been advances in ball spin and flight and speed with which tennis players can hit the ball because of those advances there are still rules around rackets one of them being you can't have a racket uh, that's bigger than a certain size and so there's still rules and regulations that govern a racket same thing with bikes there are still rules and regulations that govern the weight a bike can be out on the course in the Tour de France. And so, and in golf, you know, there are regulations about the clubs and how they can be constructed, the length of your putter, things like that. So there are still rules in place as to how your equipment can be set up and utilized in all these other sports. And for me, we're just simply asking the IAAF to create a standard that applies here for footwear and then actually have a process to enforce it i wanted to share one tweet or i should say instagram post that was also shared on twitter from ryan hall sarah hall's husband and the fastest ever u.s male marathoner at least uh if you count his boston result in two or four and change and he said the following he said with all due respect to elid kipchoge he is clearly the greatest marathon of all time, regardless of the shoes he is in. When a shoe company puts multiple carbon fiber plates in a shoe with cushion between the plates, it is no longer a shoe. It is a spring and a clear mechanical advantage to anyone not in those shoes. I'm just hoping the IAAF makes sure the upcoming Olympics and the World Marathon majors are fair, fair playing fields for all athletes of all brands. So... Ryan came out and made that statement, obviously, in support of his wife, who could potentially be competing in the Olympics and will definitely be competing in world majors over the next 12 months. And I think that's the right thing. It's basically to call for the IAAF to look at it, to decide if there's a clear mechanical advantage, and then create rules. And a lot of people make the argument to me, well, it's hard to do that because where do you draw the line? And yes, it is going to be difficult to do that. But just because something's difficult doesn't mean it isn't a worthy pursuit so that we can actually truly believe that the athletes are competing head-to-head -head on a level playing field versus certain athletes having a distinct and unmistakable advantage before the gun even goes off. And so relative to footwear, you know, that's really all I'm talking about is just a more clear and careful consideration and then application by the IAAF to decide whether or not these shoes should be regulated. And if not, then at least apply the rule that prototypes aren't allowed on the starting line and find a way to enforce that. But again, thanks to all who shared their thoughts on that. Really, really appreciate the dialogue, even if you don't agree, because if we're talking about it, then that means that we're getting to a better place, at least of understanding each other. So with that as a brief intro, I'm going to continue my intro with uh, as I bring James on because the first two folks question, the bonus question I have for him actually relates to my thoughts about Elliot Kipchoge and we're going to get his thoughts and then react to some of your emails that came about his performance. So here we go. Welcome, James Dodds, back to the show. Good to see you, sir. Yeah, so glad to be back. Always good. So as we jump in, we're going to continue our running true-false episode that we started a few weeks back. And we've got 
at least six more that we'll get through today, but I have I have an intro true false that's related to current events for you because it's it's topical given the events of this past weekend. I also must say that the last episode I recorded, episode 152, which was a solo podcast, and I gave my reactions to the events of this past weekend, including the Elliot Kipchoge 159, as well as the world record in Chicago set by Bridget Kosky. And I've never had more emails in 24 hours. Really? Wow. From, from that episode. So I definitely said some things that not everybody was jiving with, which is okay. I love, I love the discussion, so I don't take any of it personally. And, I, and then I say, hey, come back at me if you disagree, which I, which I appreciate. And so people were definitely not loving my takes. So most people were, were coming at me about that which is which as i said is fine but i wanted to get your take with an intro true or false before we dump, jump into our our main core true or false elements and this true or false is related to the kipchoge 159 and so i want you to answer this true or false elliot kipchoge running 159 builds our sport for the long term True. Tell me why. Well, now, I mean, like, I can't help but want to know what you have to say on it, <laughs> um, which I'm about to hear. And right. I can listen to your podcast. <laughs> um, but um, say it again. It builds our sport. Builds our sport for the long term. For the so long it's, term. It's an investment in the future of our sport. So I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say that that's true. Um, and, it, and it has so much to do with, uh, again, when I first jumped into running and coaching, I tried to read everything I could possibly get my hands on and I loved reading um there's a book called the perfect mile and it's the Frank Sh- uh not Frank Shorter um but um Bannister 1954 yeah Ro- uh, Roger Bannister's story of of going sub four in the mile for the first time and it was great because there were two other athletes um an American and an Aussie you probably know the names off your cuff um but I was I, I used to be able to drop these names left and right um but anyway it's like there was this race around the world. Can it be done? Can it be done? Can it be done? And then finally Bannister goes under. And then the slew of runners that were able to do it, once that barrier was broken, it was that it was a moment of um, people, I mean, scientists and doctors even for a while leading up to it with all the 405s and 402s that had been run, there was even a question of, is it even physically possible? Um, that question right. was out there. And, and so now um, just knowing, having read about that experience, and then seeing uh, Nike put together the Nike project and, um, you know, it didn't quite happen on that day, but then this continues forward and someone has now gone under two. Now the world, um, the greatest athletes in the world at least know it's possible. It's now humanly possible. And when, when that sinks into someone's brain, as I'm talking, even I just closed my, I mean, I just got a mental picture of Kevin Garnett when they when they won uh, <laughs> their uh, first uh, yeah. NBA championship, and he screams Celtics. out, "Anything is possible!" Um, it just it something happens. It, it's a magical and beautiful thing about humans that when they um, realize that it actually is possible, it takes someone doing it um, often for us to start to believe. Uh, but when that belief sinks in. Um, it's magical what what follows, and so I do think someone will do it on a course one day. I hope to see it. You know, um, I hope I get to see it next five ten years, um, at least in my lifetime. In a real race. Yeah, but I think it'll happen in a real race on a uh, on a true course like Berlin or or there, there's there's going to be a day where we see it. Ooh, okay, so you're you're buying into the hype. So part of the reason why people were frustrated with me about my Monday podcast was because I wasn't as excited as they wanted me to be about Kipchoge breaking the two-hour barrier. And I don't know that I've appropriately articulated why on Monday, so I'm going to take another shot at it. But I would argue that potentially the answer to my question is false, that it doesn't actually build our sport for the long term, at least not in a sustainable way. And I think that really captures the challenge I have with what is marketing for running, which is that instead of building it on true, sustainable, human-based stories, it feels to me like we've relied in this case on a gimmick that will be fleeting, that will get us our 
few seconds of mention in the UT Oklahoma game. I don't know if you if you heard that where they mispronounced Kipchoge's name. They called him Kipchoge. Or the few seconds of mention on Sports Center and then Obama tweeted about it. And, you know, we get this ray of light that we're all excited about that gives us this energy. But then in order to recreate that or to get sustainable light on our sport, then we got to keep doing things like this in order to bring it back because that's what we've taught people that in order to pay attention to running, you need things like this for it to be interesting. And yet there's all these amazing stories to be told with Kipchoge himself, as well as a lot of other athletes at all levels that are equally beautiful. And I think more sustainable if we just are willing to take the time to tell those stories. I mean, I think about Stephanie Bruce, she ran in Chicago on Sunday, had a two minute PR 227. She literally shit herself in the final miles of the race and as she said on Twitter later, I had to make a decision between stopping and going to the bathroom or getting a PR. And she went <laughs> to the bathroom in her buns. And, you know, here we have mother to been doing this for a long time. Got a two minute PR. Amazing story of persistence and consistency in the sport. You know, older in the sport, but still getting faster because of that patience, persistence and consistency. And yet her story disappears because we've focused on the the limelight that Kipchoge has received and Kazuki has received for the world record. So my argument is what we've created is this fleeting interest in the sport that isn't actually sustainable and that actually might be counterproductive to building long-term interest because we're relying on gimmicks instead of the real stories. And that's the part of me that is lacking, that is left wanting because as someone who has literally dedicated hours and hours to helping build the sport because I'm just passionate about it. When I see those things, when I see the short snippet on SportsCenter that doesn't really explain even Kipchoge himself. I mean, if you just listen to the guy, I mean, nobody even knows who he is. And if they were really told who he was and what he has said and the inspiration that he brings with some of his quotes then maybe they would be intrigued to follow along a little bit longer. And when he goes and runs in London or wherever next, they would follow along. But instead, he's just another African runner that they don't understand that run inexplicably fast on the day. And so that's that's my worry, is that it's not actually creating sustainable interest and in, and then perhaps actually making it harder down the road to create sustainable interest. And so that's where my frustration is born from that came out on Monday. I think some people were considering maybe I was being a little bit of a buzzkill about it. And believe me, I'm as passionate about this stuff as anybody. And I just want to see all the stories be told in their full glory. Because if we did that, then I feel like we could actually build real fans versus relying on this type of show. Yeah, and I hope people hear what you're saying because... um I know we put it in true false categories, so we create spectrums, <laughs> it creates dialogue. But, um, you know, it, it what you have is a very valid concern. It's a, it's a very valid concern because you have a big heart for the sport overall. And there are some unsung heroes that may not get the attention that they deserve. But in some sense, they wouldn't get that attention otherwise because there may just be eyeballs not looking at the sport at all. And then it takes a guy like this to, you know, break two and then people look at the sport. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily like riding the hype and thinking like this is going to put us put the sport at a, a higher position that then it is sustained from there, but rather it's it's this one big outlier that are going to cause people to pay attention to the sport, uh, maybe have a few more conversations with family members about why they run marathons. Also, the psychological impact that I hope it has on other professionals so more people, we get to see them go under two in the, you know, the next decade or so. So I think that it's part of a ripple effect, um, but in and of itself, I don't think it like defines our sport by any means. Uh, I just hope that it has that ripple effect to pull it up, pull it along in other ways. And I hope you know, I hope other athletes do, uh, you know, their stories are told. I, it's kind of like what this is is I feel like the concern you're bringing up is similar to um, like the uh, I freaking love talking about the O five Longhorns with Vince Young. Um, uh, a big part of that story, them beating uh, USC, like a lot of people forget about 
our defense that year. It was one of the greatest defenses that the University of Texas ever had and brought to a national championship game. And those held, held who were, Reggie Bush in check. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, mature listeners or, or, or mature fans know that they're really ingrained in that. Um, so in some sense, uh, you know, that really mature involved fan could have at that time said VY was overhyped and it wasn't necessarily good for the horns, but at the same time, VY was great for the horns and it was really fun to watch. And yes, it took a whole team. It's just his name alone stood out as this one big outlier that got way more attention. Um, you know, whereas the rest of the team didn't quite get as much attention. So it's similar. I even think of Cowherd too, who talks about the Peyton effect where like, when Peyton was on a team, defense always suffered because there was this Peyton effect. It was like, he's got it. And he, and he talked about that with... Um, Peyton Manning? Yeah. 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 Um, so there's all kinds of examples, I think, out there where someone gets a little more attention because we love to personify sports, especially when you talked about it from the marketing perspective. We love to boil sports or teams or we just like to boil it all down to an individual. Um, you know, like if you're watching basketball, it's going to be LeBron and the Lakers takes on, you know you know, name an opponent, but we love to just put it all on one person to tell these stories and catch people's attention. Um, so your point can be true. I think you have a valid concern for the sport overall. Um, but I'll still hang my hat on my answer. I appreciate the counterpoint. I'll make one more point, which is that that Nike spent allegedly, or at least not Nike, but Nike and Ineos, the, the title sponsor of the effort spent apparently close to $20 million dollars just putting together the weekend. And I'm sure many would argue that that was money well spent because of the eyeballs and the attention that it all got and everybody talking about the pink Nike shoes. I'm sure Nike's very happy with it and they'll sell a lot of pink Nike shoes as a result. But then I ask, well, what if that $20 million had been spent in a different way to actually invest in more sustainable storytelling across a lot more athletes to build interest that might actually span a spectrum and be more sustainable, what would that have done? Would that have been money better spent in building the sport long term? Or is this money money better spent? And we don't know. We can't know the answer to that. But I think for the sake of Nike, the $20 million was well spent. For the sake of the sport, I think it probably could have been better spent in building long-term sustainable fans. That's another perspective on it. But I want people to hear this, which is that I appreciate the dialogue. I appreciate all the emails. I appreciate those that were excited about it because at some level I was too. But I can't help as somebody who's deep in this to be left a little bit wanting from it, especially when you bring in the effects of the shoes and all the other pieces. So please forgive me for (laughs) my, for my, for for caring basically yeah. <laughs> for caring too much yeah you just wanted to draw the attention to a bigger a bigger story and a more more important story and i can hear that but it's all good one one note i did want to say about kipchoge is that the guy is so is so full of yoda like quotes and i wanted to share this one that i picked up from the let's run recap of the event where kipchoge was asked about the salazar situation and the salazar ban and if anybody else had answered this way we would have thought or if it had been answered in a less flowery language pun intended and you'll see what i mean in a second then we would have probably attacked him for it but kipchoge said (laughs) to the and and i may not get this quote exactly right but paraphrasing where there are flowers there are also weeds in vienna we're talking about the flowers (laughs) so so there you go he he didn't answer the question but he answered the question in a very Kipchoge like way which is the Yoda master of running and I love that actually yeah. alright so there we go hopefully that answers some of your concerns concerned <laughs> listeners you thought maybe I'd gone off the rails on Monday but uh, again appreciate your feedback let's jump in since I started James with that one you're gonna you're gonna start as we jump into our main true false seg- section alright so I had these from the last time we um, got started but Running trail improves road performance, but road running road does not improve trail performance. True or false? I would say definitively that, that is false. You know, I, I believe that a good trail runner is 
also working on the roads, particularly on the faster ends of the spectrum. You know, I think sometimes it's hard to get pure raw speed from the trail because of the terrain and and how it may or may not be measured and all those things. So at least the, the fast trail runners that I know, the ones that are competing at the high level, including the great Paul Terranova, who's been on the show, has, you know, is very much steeped in still doing speed work on the road to maintain that that edge that that speed and you know as I think about my summer of moonlighting in the trail you know I was still doing road workouts that were basically set up for marathoners that were training for fall races and while I didn't do as many of those as I would have done I think if I'd completely cut them out then it would have definitely put me in a in a lower position or less prepared position than I was when I did do the 50 miler and you know of course I had to add in the trail time and the time on the hills and by the way I did a lot of my hill work on the roads actually to replicate the the elevation changes I would see in Canada so I think it's critical to do both you know I'm not saying that you can't be a fast trail runner without without some road work but I do think those best trail runners and I've also even interviewed Ian Sharman on this, who's finished top 10 at Western States nine times. You know, he does track work on the road or, tr- you know, work on the road or track. So I think those best trail runners are still doing, still doing both. So I think, I think it's an either or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a hard one to argue with. I actually went true on this one. And based on your response, again, it is hard to argue with because there are going to be elements in both, right? Um, you know, building cardiovascular endurance, whether it's on the trail or uh, the road or the track, um, doing speed work, all of it's going to come together. But the reason why I went true on this one is because maybe a, maybe a better way to say it is that I think the impact that um, your trail running has on your road running is greater than your road running impact on trail running and it specifically comes to like the technical components or like downhill components sure um i've just seen athletes that are brilliant on the road not be able to carry it over um to the trail itself right and that you know descending is um its own thing to learn uh and and someone who's not comfortable with that um or just even agility uh left to right movement anything that's non-linear um some of those really gifted, really talented. Allison and I have talked this out before. Um, uh, she just doesn't love going downhill at all. Me and neither. There's no way I could ever run alongside Allison for um, even half an hour in her easy jogs if we're on the road. But when we're on the trail, um, if there's plenty hang. of descents and there's some, um, at least, at least I can hang in a, in a way where she's not too bored and I'm not too overworked. Right. right. Like right, she could still right. kick my ass. <laughs> right. Um, but the degree to which she would kick my ass on the road is so great. Um, so that's why I went true there. Now, if you'd said it as success on the roads doesn't necessarily translate to success on the trails, then I absolutely agree with you there. But <laughs> I still think the best trail runners are still working the roads. I'm not convinced yet that it goes the other way. You know, I just spent all this time on the trail this summer i think it helped me because i was working hills maybe working some things i don't normally work and working some weaknesses so to speak but i don't know yet if it's going to translate to the road marathon i'm doing in february we'll see i do feel that i've lost some sharpness coming back to the roads that i'm still rebuilding as i get back into road marathon training so we'll see how that plays out but for me the jury's out whether it goes from trail to road and I get, I get, but I get your points on the other side. You know, I think some of the big benefit is, um, even if you have to do some sharpening work, you, I think the, sh- the, the strength as well as the, um, strength like around ligaments, um, just, just building an infrastructure that can handle that speed work. Um, I think that's where the, the biggest benefit's going to come from. So it's like you, you build the base on the trail and then a few sharpening workouts on the road and it's like. Yeah, I think you're going to do well. (laughs) We shall see. We'll keep everybody posted. All right, so here's mine. And for this true-false, I've got to set a little bit of context. I just want you to assume for a second that we're talking about a four-hour marathoner, which means somebody can run about a nine-minute pace for the marathon, just for example purposes, okay? So 
a 90-minute easy, medium, long run for that runner done at 10 minutes per mile <laughs> gives you the same benefit as the same 90-minute medium long run done at 11 minutes per mile. So same time, one's just slower. I'll say true. I'm going to go true here. Okay. Because um, we're talking about marathon goal pace, which is one of your slowest race paces. Um, and we're talking about an easy run, like within the training. Um I think this is what I'm going to say true on this one because, um, you know, I typically think anywhere from uh, I typically think 60 to 90 seconds slower than race pace is a good long run pace to prescribe to runners on easy days. Um, And in this case, we're looking at two minutes, but still it's time on your feet. Um, It's an aerobic effort. You're you're burning, you know, a higher level of fat um, than sugar. It's um, the mix is right in the training. So nine if that person you know wants to run nine on race day and they're doing a 10 minute pace on their easy run then oh wait we just brought in a an L. it's a shorter distance but it's the same time on your feet still yeah, i'm gonna say yeah, you're, you're working your you're working the same aerobic engine um for the same amount of time and if you're prescribed if you need about 90 minutes that day yeah i'm gonna go true on that one <laughs> I agree with you. I I figured you'd lean that way because of our common background as coaches, but I agree with you. And that's something that I don't think people understand, you know, and obviously you have to keep in mind the purpose of the day. And if the purpose were different that day, then maybe this wouldn't be true. But the purpose is just getting an easy aerobic effort. 90 minutes is 90 minutes. And I think people in their head naturally rank those two and say, well, I went faster one day. So that means that was a better run. Well, I would ask, is it? Because maybe be going a little faster that day went against what your body needed for recovery, went to, you know, maybe pushed you up against that neuromuscular threshold that that would have been avoided had you been going 11 minutes that day. Again, either way, 90 minutes on your feet is 90 minutes of aerobic development. Same benefit, even though you're going slower because you develop your aerobic system in a huge range. And yeah, there are days to go faster for sure. But on those easy, medium, long run days, I would rather people err on the conservative side of their aerobic range so they stay away from their neuromuscular limits so that they can stay consistent and be healthy and so forth. Even though in our heads, it's really hard to compare those two and think, the 11 minute run is the same. 11 minute mile run is the same. Well, when I lit, I lit up when you pointed to your head because I was actually going to say earlier um, before I distracted myself, um, the the 10 minutes, the 10 minute mile, so nine miles I guess, um, at a 10 minute pace versus the 11 at 8.2, is for your head. It's for your ego. Right. Um, but but a lot of what we know, like when we consider, like I always think it's fascinating to think like where the science starts how the conclusions are drawn, you know, that's in like a lab setting and you're looking at things like um, heart rate and you're looking at time. But by time you get out to application and you're in the world of just coaching and training runners, um, you were often prescribing miles because, you know, in their, in their heads, they're like, Hey, I'm going to do 26 miles. And so I want to incrementally build up towards that. So I go from eight to 10 to 12 to 14 to 16. And so we have this linear path of improvement. So, and then we have reward systems in there as well. So I'm, I'm addicted to Strava. I look at it most every day in my office. Um, I even give kudos to my athletes who break certain mileage barriers. And those are the things we're given. Um, we reward around number of miles run my annual goal. My biggest goal for this year is a number of miles run not amount of time spent on my feet so we get to where when we get back into application and it's all these are varying forms of good like ultimately this is a good problem to have athletes wanting to run more miles but ultimately I think when the athletes pushing themselves down to the 10 minute pace for nine miles rather than 11 um, especially on a day when they're when their their body's trying to tell them like I don't feel good but they're pushing anyway that's that's mainly because they're caught up in their head and they're and they're and the, the faster pace gives them a, a little bit of an ego stroke and the slower pace makes them feel like, man, I don't want my average pace on Strava to look so low. <laughs> right. And another reaction I had, I, w- I have to throw this in here. Um, I'm just in an excited mood right now, ready to talk. 
But um, I, had, I took a screenshot of one of your long runs recently that you ran on a Saturday, and I emailed it to one of my own athletes. And I said, hey, I thought we had a conversation about slowing down. You know, Chris is a 240 guy. And this guy um, is about 40 minutes slower than you in the marathon. And while he's got a really big goal, and I think he's going to hit his goal, and I think he's going to qualify for Boston, he's got a lot of talent, and he's moving in the direction for getting better. I was like, are you sure you want to be out running Chris on a Saturday for your long run <laughs> when he's got 40 minutes on you in the marathon? Like, <laughs> right. what What are you doing here? Like, uh, you live you live what you're preaching. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. Um, Follow me on Strava, and you know that. <laughs> Another practical example on terms of athletes, I was having this conversation about one of my runners who runs in the evening from a scheduling standpoint on Mondays for his medium long run. And he said, hey, you know, sometimes I just can't get in the 10 miles that you have on the schedule because of time and constraints that he has in the evenings. So I've been running a little faster just to get it done. And I said, no, no, no. Let's think about that differently. Don't worry about the 10 miles. Get in the 90 minutes or the 85 minutes or whatever it is. I don't care how fast you go. I'd rather you go the right pace and focus on time than rush to get in that 10 number just to check a box. So anyway, so he made that adjustment, I believe, and is happier for it. And it fits, you know, it fits into his schedule a little better and at the same time still getting the benefit that he needs. So there you go. Thanks for that one. I like that. I did too. So this one's uh, mine, right? Yep. This one probably it may just be a continuation of that conversation, but it came from an athlete at Rogue, so I was like, I'll throw it out there. So if your if your pace group feels fast, hold on and trust you'll catch up. True or false? <laughs> if your pace group, so what context? Give me some context. Pace group in what context? Or I should um, flip it. If you want to run faster, pick a faster pace group and hold on. True or false? Okay, so. While I do believe there is a time and a place to push yourself, I would say false on this one. And this one I hammer home so often with my runners. And it's especially true for the marathon distance and the half marathon distance. We're working on a game that is all about efficiency. Your ability to cover 13.1 miles or 26.2 miles with the least energy burned so that you have the most at the end to get the most out of it. And so your vector of improvement is not killing yourself, pushing yourself harder in workouts. It's actually finding the ability to gain control at pace. And so what I tell people on a day, you know, maybe where they're running with the pace group as an example, and they feel good that day and they want to push and, you know, beat the guy next to them, even though they're not really racing or the girl next to, to her. Instead of doing that, instead of pushing and finding that edge, hold back and make that prescribed pace feel as easy and relaxed as you can. That ability, that ability to find relaxation at target paces and workouts is actually where the real magic is and where the where you'll get the most bang for your buck when you actually get to race day. And so, so rather than always being on the edge with a faster group or or maybe pressing within your own group finding that control is where the real magic is so that's my main answer i will say there is a caveat where there is a time and a place for some people to graduate and go to the next level and then find a relaxed spot at that new level but that needs to be carefully carefully managed and is generally you know, it, it's a part of the process, but it generally comes once someone achieves absolute control first at wherever their given pace group is. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I'm going false on that too. And w- on one hand, I understand it because um, I remember I had a friend that like he he was part of Rogue. He left he left um, just marathoning specifically, jumped into Ironman training, and his philosophy on bike rides was he just got into groups that were faster and could go further. And he said he showed up every Saturday um, and he'd get dropped until one day he didn't get dropped. So when you hear stuff like that and you see and he had he had amazing like uh, performance and improvement. I was so proud of him. So when you see things like that anecdotally, it's easy to believe in that idea. Yeah, I just need to push myself. But this is back to our previous conversation about for the head. Like we're either in our head thinking we're not good enough. So we think the answer is always harder, 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 more, 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 more. Um, or we get ego strokes because we're like, man, I kept up with such and such today. I feel like a badass. Um, but yeah, I'm always going to hang my hat on 
the consistency. I would rather see athletes improve their frequency of running and then their their weekly mileage and then even string that together. I, I, I met one-on-one with a few of my what I call like A-plus athletes who are always just going to do what I say, and they both had Excel spreadsheets that outside of Strava they also keep. And they showed them to me, and there were a lot of rhythms that I, I thought they would be perfect. I thought their two up weeks would be like 40 to 50, down weeks 30, 40 to 52 in a row. But it was more like 40 high 40s, 30, oops, a 28 at 18, back up to mid 40. It, the inconsistencies to me were like fascinating because these are my A-plus athletes. And I realized that there are so few athletes that if you look at a six-month cycle who actually deliver that pure, like they nail their numbers two up weeks and then take a nice little down week and then nail them for the up weeks. Um, If you were to look, I think, um, you know, at athletes' schedules like that and identify how many people can put in that consistency over a long haul, like a six-month training cycle, um, the numbers get pretty low pretty fast. And so that's the first place I'm going to push folks towards. And like you said, there'll be that, that natural, it doesn't mean that people have to stay with their training, whatever group they're in now, they got to stay with forever by no means. I think if in fact, they're that consistent athlete, um, not everyone in their group is, so they'll naturally graduate or like races or two mile time trials will help identify that, um, and point towards moving up. But I'm always going to want an athlete to be as precise as possible when it comes to qualities. And I understand that my caveat, you brought up the word caveat. My only caveat was, I guess if you know, deep down, like, um, I have a few friends that will self-identify as lazy, um, (laughs) you know, and it's interesting to hear him talk. But if you, if you are that self-aware where you're like, no, 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 I really do know I have more to give. I just generally don't want to give that much. Like if you, if that really is your struggle to run fast on hard workouts, but it's within your window of capability. Um, then in that case, sure you bump up, but you better know for sure that's the issue. Cause otherwise that's a, a great way to get injured. I'll give you also just finishing this one up a personal example for me and you know, fit, fitness naturally ebbs and flows, especially when you're in my situation where I've kind of, I'm as I'm close, I'm closer to that asymptote, that, that limit of my potential. And so when I'm detraining for good reason, recovering from a race and I have to build back, or maybe I'm coming back from injury and I have to build back. Naturally, I'm not at the place always to run with the group that I normally run with. And so that can ebb and flow. And the thing, and the mistake I've made at times is because of ego, just jumping back in being like, well, you know, I was taking a little break or had a little injury. I'm going to go back in. I'm just going to go, I'm going to roll with that group. I normally roll with, and hope for the best. Well, inevitably that ends up with starts and stops and perhaps more injury or, you know, issues where I overdo it versus if I just decide and commit to, Hey, I'm going to back up a group or even two groups and roll with that next group on the road where I know I can be comfortable and stay in my zone and do that for a longer than maybe I, I, you know, would normally the fitness comes faster. The adaptations come faster and then on the other side, I'm able to get to a better place because of that patience. And so generally, patience, patience rules. All right, so that's your number two. Let me go to my number two. And I think I know how you're going to answer this one, but I'm not sure. So that's what always <laughs> makes us fun. We're not just in our own heads. That's We're what in each makes other's heads. So true or false, the coach-athlete relationship is primarily... Not, not all, but primarily a one-way street. I can't help but want to ask a clarifying question <laughs> and say, like, are you saying uh, patterns that exist in what you've observed or the way it should be? I'm talking about the way it should be. Okay, that's what I figured. Um, I sort of identify that it's often one way, um, but it should be two-way so you said true false it's one way i'm gonna say false okay yeah i think and and i'm getting and if i'm guessing here i think that um the one way would be that the the typical what i observe is that the one way is the coach ultimately investing in the athlete always providing answers always trying to build structure and always trying to push people along and, and get super concerned by like 50 races in your head when you have your own race um I'm going to say no, and, and, and it's funny, I switched my approach where I don't think of one-on-ones as mandatory, 
um, I look at my group and I will volunteer for about six weeks straight um, early in training cycles. By the way, guys, you know that I'm available. If you'd like to have a one-on-one, uh, you need to schedule with me and like I'll make time for you. Like, you know, I work a full-time job. We're slammed, seen multiple rounds of layoffs. It's like, but I will squeeze an athlete into a schedule um, if they ask for that time. So I hope I'm not getting on a soapbox here, but you, you touched a good one. You are, um, but it's okay. I'm it's a good like, one. It's got to be two ways. And, and I want athletes to come to the table with like, here's what I was thinking. Here's what I've been trying. Um, here is where I'm not getting results. And then the, the coach um, who's already got the program laid out is already there every week for your qualities. Um, your long runs are set up for um, – you know, with all the water by, I'm thinking of rogue right now, but like, you know, your, your coach is already providing what they can, but they can one only be so invested and two only know so much. So, um, the athlete has to see it as like, I've got a level of responsibility here too. I need to let, I need to make sure I told my, my coach, my race date, my goal, um, why my goal matters, um, what I've tried in the past that didn't work, what I'm willing to do, what, obstacles I could possibly foresee in my own life like I would when athletes come to the table having done that introspection oh god like I'm so excited to help them like I'll, I'll lose sleep for that athlete because I want to figure it out for them um, but it's got to be two ways they got to come to the table with all of that the pattern I see is that it's quite different it's like they hope maybe you've got this <laughs> inspirational magic inside you that if if I don't know they join your group somehow that rubs off here's a question is it okay for someone who's athlete style, and we talk about coaching styles, but I would say athlete styles is a low maintenance style where it's like, hey, James told me to do this. I'm going to do that. And, you know, unless there's an issue, I'm not, you know, I don't need to check in because I'm, I'm managing my own stuff. I'm not going to bother him. Is that an okay mode if that's the way it works for some people? Even though I went off on a rant, I'm going to say, yeah, that's an okay mode because I can't think of anyone who embodies that more than Brian Ward. And I've, I've got to coach him uh, in, in different ways, sometimes just as his direct coach at Rogue and then other times just like when I was learning to be a coach, he was willing to be my guinea pig with like how I wrote out macros. And I was like, I want to test these things. And I did break him once. So he took on that like uh, chill, laid back attitude of like um, – you put it in the macro, so I ran it, and, it, and, <laughs> and you know, broke. it was a medium-long run. I got super obsessed with fast, uh, throwing in um, hard qualities into medium-long runs in that season, and, and it was just a little too much, you know, and I, and I learned to dial it back. But, um, no, I definitely think it, there, there's room for that athlete, but, again, when I think of Brian Ward, I, I think of it as two-way still because um, – he's doing all of his work. Like he's already taking into consideration like his own nutrition and, um, when he's going to get those run in runs in and, and the barriers that would prevent him like working around his travel schedule. Like he's doing all of that. We, we may not have it all written on a piece of paper where I know that he knows that we both know it, but, um, yeah, his, his demeanor is just a lot different. So yeah, there's room for yeah. that kind of athlete. And I think that's an important distinction. Two way isn't necessarily all two way conversation. Because, yeah, there are different styles and some people are, hey, I'll beat the guy in the back that's in the back that's listening, following, managing my own stuff. And when something pops up, I'll check in. But if I, otherwise, I'm OK. I'm I'm a low maintenance. I would consider myself athlete, athlete partially because I'm a coach myself, but partially because I'm an introvert. <laughs> as much as I interact with people all the time in this world, that's not my normal mode. So in a coach athlete situation, I'm pretty low maintenance, but it is two way in that I'm as invested as the coach and the thought processes and I'm checking in when I need to. So I think that's the caveat if we're using that word to this is that two way can come in, in forms that aren't always just pure two way communication, but I would agree it needs to be a two way street whether that's two-way communication or just two-way and investment and ownership because that's that's how you get the most out of it as an athlete and one and so just to give some example an example from my recent the world I've been living in recently where I've been having a lot of race talks race strategy discussions with runners who are racing this fall and 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 I think Everybody dreads this question from me, but it's always pretty much the first one I ask when I sit down for these conversations is, 
what do you think you want to run? Because I always go into that conversation knowing what I think they should run, but I don't ever want to tell them that because it can't come from me. It has to come from them and their own belief system in it. And while usually it becomes somewhat of a negotiation, you know, to me, the athlete needs to walk in with that perspective, that perception of what they think they can do and what they think they want to go for the risks they want to take and so forth into that conversation. So I make them tell me that first and then we talk about it and I bring in my perspective. Most of the time it's pretty aligned because, you know, they're in tune, I'm in tune, we're in tune together. But that's just an example of as an athlete, you have to take ownership of what you're doing. You have to have a clear perspective and even if you're just doing what the coach says, like a good athlete is like a, a dumb athlete, you know, Steve used to call them with that being a compliment, you should still know why. And if there are moments when you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. You should ask or talk about it because otherwise you're not going to know. And then maybe you won't believe, or there'll be a little bit of shadow of a doubt in your mind as to that, as to whether that's the right thing. And, and that, puts a little chink in the armor to your confidence that might eventually manifest on race day. So I agree with you on this one needs to be a a two way street, but I figured we would agree there. (laughs) Yeah. But I do like the debate. All right. What's your third one here? All right. So I'm going to give a short version and a long version of the, the, the statement. So it's easier to answer. But first is bonking is bad. True or false. Bonking is bad. (laughs) And the long version is, if you bonk on a long run, it just means that you haven't figured out your nutrition plan and that's poor planning on your end. So this is bonking in training, not bonking on race day? Yeah, we'll leave race day off the table. Okay. Bonking is bad. I'm going to say, and I could debate both sides, but I'm going to say false. Bonking is not necessarily a bad thing. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I think just like failure on race day, anytime you don't have a good day, it teaches you something. And I'd rather people learn lessons like that in training than learn it on race day itself. Now, it's not fun (laughs) when it happens. And I will say it especially happens in the summer. You know, I I definitely have to talk more athletes off ledges in August than I do in January. (laughs) And those You know, those runs seem to be just more common where the heat might win and you just have a bad day. But I think it's a critical part of the process because when that happens, you learn something about your nutrition. It also maybe takes you to that dark place of having to fight through a rough day where you're just happy to get done, happy in our our world just to get back to Rogue and throw yourself down on the concrete and maybe half-ass try to roll out because you made it. And... That builds character. You know, it builds resilience. It builds an ability to overcome challenges on race day that may not look the same, but that will give you that metal to persevere. So bonking is not bad. Now, I would say if it's frequent and it seems to be recurring, that that's a bad sort of bonking. You know, the one-off bonk, okay. The recurring bonk, not okay, because that means you're not learning something or maybe there's some bigger problem at hand in your blood work or whatever that we need to be investigating so that we can get to the bottom of it. But a one-off bonk, not bad. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you. Uh, We're in alignment on the answer. Bonking is not bad. So um, I think the way I said it is bonking is bad, so false. Right. Um, This came from two places. Uh, Again, a rogue athlete uh, helping me brainstorm some topics that wanted to know a little bit more about like why does Steve prescribe you know historically in the team team rogue program he had prescribed these 30 mile no nutrition runs that was a mix in his strategy uh, right. not every weekend but you had assignments at times where you went 30 miles no nutrition you've lived those I've just heard stories about <laughs> them so maybe it's not you can, as bad as it sounds but <laughs> go ahead. I was gonna say maybe you can tell a story <laughs> Steve also ran his um, that 50 mile or that 50k um, out in West Texas, 31 miles on no nutrition, and he won. Yeah. So, um, it also came from a place. As she had asked the question, I decided to like. Um, it, it reminded me. I wrote a blog once. I want you to bonk, and I just kept mm. using the word all throughout the blog. This is when I wrote for Rogue Rundown a few times when I was on staff, and um, 
even one of my very good close personal friends, that was his response was like wrong. You should never bonk. Um, uh, that just means you had poor planning in your nutrition. So that that's kind of where this came from. And I just wanted to talk about it. So all the psychological reasons I agree. Um, that's typically why I want to, uh, encourage it like here and there, like go experience it, go find your limit. So you know exactly where it is. You become a little more intuitive with your body. I feel like I'm bonking on a regular basis, trying to keep up with Jen Hickey on your, on your team on long runs right now. Um, so it's almost become a regular practice for me, which is bad. Um, no, but on, on a serious note, I also think you can start pushing back like the rule of thumb for like, you know, your nutrition is that you, the idea is that everybody has about 90 minutes of like glycogen or stored sugar that's accessible. And you should take that first goo or start your nutrition like 75 to 90 minutes in. So you precede that like bonking impact and then stay on it after that. But you can start kicking that wall back a little bit further. Some of it comes from, uh, um, fitness gains, but also your body learning to tap into, uh, um, more fuel sources. We have a ton in our body, both in the way of fat and sugar that we can tap into. But if we're never exposing ourselves to that edge or that limit, how will our body improve at tapping into that? We'll always rely upon an external resource. And so I think mixing that in is actually a good thing. Um, overdoing it agreed is a bad thing if it becomes too frequent. And then on race day, never would I play with it. Um, like the fact that Steve applied it to his 50 K I'm like, Whoa, good for you. <laughs> Also, why? Bold strategy. But good for you. Um, on race day, I'm going to be like, no, dialed in like like a hawk. Like, know exactly what you're going to eat and eat it right when you want to. So this begs a follow-on question for you, which is, should you seek out the bonk? Should I, personally? No, or just one, anyone. Should, should one seek out the bonk? You know, that's the heart of the message in that, that blog. Um, and then I, I think so. Um, I do think that that's, I would love to, you may know more of Steve's perspective, but I think that that's why he would prescribe that at times in season. I do think we should, in the same way you, you seek out an event that maybe is a little, maybe your trail run, like you sought something longer and greater. I think seeking out a bonk, um, uh, I'll safely say right now, um, once to twice a year, but like going after a long run with no nutrition and, and testing your body and seeing, how you, even if it's just for psychological to test, how am I going to respond? That was my mantra, uh, the end of last year for all my races. I was like, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? And it's until you get into those spaces where you're actually hurting and you think like, like everything inside you wants to quit. You don't even need that question of how, how are you going to respond? So I would say tackle a long, miserable day here and again <laughs> and uh see how you respond I, I would say you don't necessarily sink out need to seek out the bonk because it'll come to you <laughs> i mean i've been doing this for a long time running at least myself and there's always at least one run a season where you're just like damn that felt terrible <laughs> and you don't know why and that's a part of the magic is then trying to figure it out as you go, as you fight through it. So I don't know that you have to seek it out <laughs> to experience it. We need to put a one liner on that. <laughs> yeah. You can wrap it up uh, <laughs> with um, don't find the bonk. The bonk <laughs> the will, bonk find, will you. find you. Perfect. All right. So let's let's wrap this episode up with the last one. And this is the one I teased on the last episode that we didn't get to that I was excited about. And it and it actually now is even, I think, richer because of our conversations we had a couple weekends back when you were with me down in the hill country. So, true or false, the fear of success holds more people back than the fear of failure. True. <laughs> All right, and it's tell a deep me more. One. Um, Gosh, it, it's so hard. I think there. I think this becomes like a little bit of a circle, <laughs> where it's like, um, you can call it fear. Um, it, it's like it starts with fear of success, but then because I, th I guess I have to untangle why I think it's fear of success. I do think fear of success um, cripples people because within success, you find uncertainty, which leads you back to fear. So it's hard to say which one, um, but. I think that familiarity is like a comfortable environment. You can, you, if like you are who you are consistently, um, 
you know, you at least know how to show up, you know how to operate all your cues that are in your brain that that fire, um, you know, you, you, you sort of know what to do. But if you were to exceed, succeed, surprise yourself, find yourself in a new, uh, uh, I guess, space in life that you've never been before, well, then you're open to just a flood of unknowns now. And so where you take yourself after success is so uncertain that it becomes a fear statement again. Um, so whether I said true or false, I, I, I don't know that it, it <laughs> matters said so true. much. You said that, true, fear of success holds more people back than fear of failure. Right, and I don't know if it's more. I'm trying to think of like just the general population, but yeah. I said true, I think, because it's in me. And yeah. so I had to go that way. And a lot of times I'll assume that if it's in me, it's in other people, and, and that's how sure. I relate. Um, so I said true. I don't know actual percentages of how many people in the running population or even just life population yep. deal with the deal with the fear of success. But um, it's a, uh, all I'll say is that it's a real real thing, and I think that that fear of success comes uh, from um, uncertainty. Yeah, I don't know. I would. I mean. It's hard to know, right? It's not like we're looking at a data set here to see who, what holds people back more more than the other. But I'm going to say false. I actually think fear of failure is a bigger deal. But I think fear of success is something that holds people back oftentimes in ways they don't see. You know, I think most people understand what fear of failure is all about because we're trained that way since we're little you know don't lose right don't be the first loser and in our competitive world that that really captures people and so oftentimes I think people are paralyzed with the idea of what if I don't get it what if I don't do what I want what if what will people think when I don't do it so I actually think that's probably a more common thing but the fear of success I think is maybe something that holds captive more people than we think and is probably more present unknowingly in people where you know where they may be unaware of it than than maybe people will realize and i think sometimes it actually comes it comes in with people that might on the outside look successful you know where you think oh that person's already nailing it they're faster than me and maybe therefore that person gets a little bit of a buy because they're already high achieving. And to me, those are the types of people that oftentimes struggle with this because they're afraid of seeing what happens at that next level because then that will create real expectation for them versus just kind of achieving at a level that everybody else thinks is good, but maybe they know in the back of their mind they're not really doing as much as they could or they're relying a little bit too much on their talent and so i think that's where a lot of times it manifests is in those talented people that are otherwise look successful that are afraid to really push their limits because if they succeeded there then everybody else would realize oh damn now that person was sandbagging this whole time <laughs> let's put real expectations on them again but, you know, I think, I mean, that may be a generalization, but it can come in all forms of people just being afraid of if they achieve, then that will create expectations that then are unsustainable or that then create pressure that they're worried about. I think it could also come in the form of people that say, hey, you know, I just want to run for fun. Like, that's my thing. And they're doing that maybe for a variety of reasons, but I think sometimes it's a protective me mechanism of if I say I want a goal and then I get it, then, oh, no then I got to go get more goals. And that feels like a lot of pressure and expectation that I just don't want to face. So that's where I think it manifests. And I do think it's present and more prevalent than we think and probably more common in people where they don't realize it than the other. But still, fear of failure, I think, is probably the most crippling thing that we face. Yeah. You know, what came to mind, I actually talked to a professional counselor about this. I um, There was a season where I actually said, and I believed it. I wouldn't just say it to say it. Um, I believed in some ways the worst thing about a goal is achieving it. <laughs> right. Because once you achieve that goal, um, you mentioned like, oh, like maybe the sustained level of success. But for me, even like 
I love to talk in metaphors. He and he's great. He's the perfect person for me to talk with because, um, you know, he's got a existential basis and he always speaks in metaphors as well. But it's like when you come to mountaintops, like as soon as you get to the summit, take it in as long as you want. But I don't care how long you sit there to take in the summit of a mountain. You got to go back down. <laughs> you got to climb back down the mountain. You got to test the valleys again. And then you got to start another ascent. And so it, you can easily trickle. I think sometimes summits or success and that fear of success, um, like the back end scary side of it is like nihilistic thought. Because you're like, if I reach this mountaintop, then in a sense, I can't live here. I can't live literally at the summit of a mountain. So what was the point in the first place? And am I just going to set up a series of mountaintops that I go seek out for life? Is, is that all life is? is? You just set the next goal and go climb it and then set the next goal and climb. And I hope I'm not pulling anyone into this train of thought. I'm, <laughs> I'm more so explaining where it kind of comes from. Right. Um, and so I think that's that, that's maybe a basis for why sometimes people can it, it can just disrupt status quo and, and the human body loves homeostasis. It always wants to seek what's normal, what's comfortable, what's familiar. Um, well, so I guess and it, there are real challenges on the other side. You know, sometimes we see people who get their big goal, get their big BQ, get their big PR that they've been striving for for a long time. And then suddenly they don't know what to do with themselves because they got it and they don't know what the next thing is. And that can be a really challenging time. And maybe there's some fear of that. What happens if my pursuit goes away? Then what do I do with myself? <laughs> what will that next mountain bring? I think we need to give listeners an encouragement here because if we need to encourage them to go get it and then be open to that self-discovery on the other side. Like trust that there is an unfolding on the other side of those accomplishments that they can't foresee and they don't have control over. Right now they can just focus on that one summit, go get that next goal. And then be open to where life's going to take you on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then be honest with yourself about what you really want. And be honest with yourself about what it will take to get there. And then go do it. Don't be afraid to tackle something that is big and that may cause you to have bigger questions once you get there. <laughs> it's all good. Well, we got to get you to coaching, but this has been fascinating. I Thank you, it. James. Really yeah, appreciate so it. And of course, thanks always to our listeners. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.